0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, in a sort of disjointed way over the summer, in between a lot of travel, we've been working our way through a series of sermons on Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. It is without doubt one of the greatest speeches ever made. I think it is arguably the most important sermon ever given in the history of the world. And that's why it was with some fear and trembling that I embarked on the sermon series because it's a little daunting to give a sermon series on a sermon that Jesus himself preached with a really deep desire not to get it wrong but to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying. And here's the reason that I think the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful. Because at the surface of it, it is such an easy sermon to understand. But once you actually understand with clarity what Jesus is saying, it is almost impossible to accept without the help of God's Spirit. It's a very easy sermon to nod your head to and agree But when the rubber hits the road and you're called to practice what Jesus taught in the sermon in the midst of a real world that's messy and broken and imperfect, you will find it is one of the most difficult things to put into practice. And I'm finding that as I write. As I'm writing these sermons, I feel very... um, Like I'm constantly picturing people's faces as I realize what Jesus is saying I think, I don't know if I could actually say this with a straight face and be taken seriously because it is so against everything that our world teaches and stands for. And yet I think if we take him seriously and really embrace the Sermon on the Mount, it will deeply affect our experience in the world. This morning I want to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, and because I was too tired to be creative, I'm just going to call this one Revenge, because that's really the topic. The topic of this passage of scripture, this part of Jesus' sermon, is how we handle the temptation to seek revenge when we've been mistreated. Now, revenge is a very strong word. It is represented on a spectrum of things, of just simple retaliation or a little A little jab back for something you've done to full on, like, retribution for something serious that was done to us. But it is a universal human experience that when someone mistreats us, there's a very strong desire to make that right. Here's what Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42 says You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. who wants to borrow from you? It's pretty uh, provocative. It's a pretty rough passage of scripture. And um, if as you were hearing that, you were like, that's so blessing, you got to pay more attention. That, that's jacked up. That's like, if you really paid attention to what Jesus just said, it is nearly impossible to accept and to practice what he just said. Because everything in our flesh screams that we should go in the opposite direction of what he just said. See, if you've ever been wronged by someone, not accidentally, but because they intentionally used their energy, their time, their resources, their creativity to do harm against you. Like their goal was to mess you up. If you've ever been the victim of that kind of wrongdoing, you know, the initial feelings are pain and rejection, betrayal, even shame, but very quickly those feelings evolve into something else, into a desire to get even, to even the score, because injustice creates an imbalance in our universe. It leaves open a real debt. We, we understand instinctively that when someone does something wrong to us, that has to be addressed. It cannot just be left to stand on its own. And very soon the pain of being mistreated evolves into a desire to make our aggressor or our attacker feel what they made us feel. And it's interesting that this desire for revenge to get even starts to burn like a fire in us. And as we nurture it, as time passes, it grows stronger and stronger until quite often the desire for revenge even exceeds the original injury So that quite often in history, what we see is when a person takes revenge, the revenge is way in excess of the original offense because it's not just the material and physical pain which I endured at that person's hands, but the desire to make you pay for the the fact that you actually tried to hurt me. That can't just be evened out by making you feel what I felt. There also needs to be punitive damages to make sure you don't ever try to do that to me again. I won't just do what you did to me, but I will hurt you to the extent that you will never think twice about attacking me ever again. And that's very often the model that runs deep when there's a long-standing feud. You you punch me, I'll kill you. You hurt one of mine, I will murder one of yours. And that's the reason that so many long-standing feuds, like the Middle East, The conflict that has been raging for centuries between Jews and Arabs. Or if you know a little bit about American history, in the Appalachians, you think about the Hatfields and the McCoys. And everyone knows that's the most famous feud in American history. Almost no one knows why they even started fighting. I had actually looked it up, because I know Hatfields and McCoys have been killing each other. They had been killing each other for years, for decades, in fact. But I wasn't sure why. And when I read the story, I understood a little bit why people would be mad. But you realize, after a very short time in those kinds of feuds, no one even remembers the original offense. They just remember the last offense. And out of a desire to correct the other, the reasoning is, I will hurt you enough that you will stop hurting me. And it never seems to work. And I think God understands the human heart. That the desire for revenge usually exceeds even just getting even. It desires to punish. And so Jesus begins by quoting the Old Testament standard for revenge and the correcting of injustice. He's quoting from the Old Testament verbatim when he says, you've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He's Quoting passages like Exodus 21, 23 to 25, Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. These are the passages in which God spells out for Israel the standard and the limits of the revenge we can seek when someone has mistreated us. And at the heart of this teaching is that the punishment must match the crime. It's one of the oldest legal doctrines in human history. It's referred to as a lex talionis, and it simply means the punishment must fit the crime. That's why we don't just give you a a, a fine for murder, and that's why we don't put people to death for speeding. We understand that at the very least, what we do in retaliation cannot exceed the original offense, now, a lot of people commenting on this part of, this, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount will argue the main force of the Old Testament teaching was to make sure people don't go overboard, that we don't kill in exchange for injury, but that when someone hurts us, we limit ourselves to doing back to them what they did to us. And in fact, what the Lex Talionis does is it transfers responsibility for this kind of retribution, not at the personal level. I don't just take out vengeance on you, but I bring it to the courts, and they adjudicate it. They make sure that something just and fair is done in response to injustice. Deuteronomy 19.21, that's one of the passages Jesus is quoting. If you read the whole thing, it's pretty stark in his demand. It says, show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The desire for revenge is wrong, but it is a distorted reflection of something that is true. And that is that justice, or injustice rather, demands some kind of response. It cannot just be left to stand that justice requires retribution. For an injustice to be corrected, you cannot just leave it be and just ignore it, blow it off, and say, I'm sure time will heal. Justice requires retribution. And that remains true today. But we understand that at the cross, Jesus did something profound with respect to the way that justice works. And even though God in his spirit demands justice, Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, is able to say to us this crazy thing. I tell you, even though that's the Old Testament standard, that whatever someone did to you, do back to them in equal measure, Jesus says that's a standard no longer enforced because I have come. That if you will follow me, here is a new standard. Do not resist an evil person. This is one of the most hotly debated passages of of the entire New Testament. And I think you'll understand why very soon. It's a really hard thing to wrap your mind around. In fact, it's been talked about so much that very common phrases in our culture come out of these verses. Phrases like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. The shirt off my back, those are phrases we speak quite often, and they come all out of this passage because Jesus gives this provocative, crazy standard for how we're supposed to respond to mistreatment. And let's face it, this is more comforting when somebody does wrong. When you mistreat me, I like the Old Testament better than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, I will show no pity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. That's the way I want it to work. That soothes me. It makes me feel like somehow the imbalance in the universe is set right again, and that makes sense to me. But Jesus says this crazy thing, do not resist an evil person. And it's incredibly important how we interpret that phrase, because that's where all the controversy swirls, is how do you interpret this phrase, do not resist an evil person? Some people have taken a really extreme view, and they said, if you're a real Christian, You just let evil people just steamroll over you. You don't even make a peep. You don't protest. You don't stand up. You let evil run its course trusting in God's ultimate justice. Some have even gone as far as to say for us to have policemen and soldiers and governors is unchristian because those people serve to resist evil, and Jesus told us not to resist evil. I appreciate how literally they're trying to take all that, but I think that fails to understand the broader context of Jesus' actual life and ministry, and the rest of the testimony of Scripture. I think what Jesus is really saying is not that we should be passive and non-resistant in the face of evil. But he's saying that the way we respond to evil matters supremely. That while the Old Testament and, in fact, our human nature demands some kind of vengeance... An eye for eye, a tooth for tooth. If you snub me, I will snub you. If you hurt my child, I will hurt your child. If you shut me out, I'll shut you out. If you steal from me, I will make sure you lose what you have. That's the human spirit. That was the Old Testament standard. That's how injustices were made right before Jesus. Jesus. But Jesus says that the way we respond to mistreatment and justice should not be in the same manner in which the injury was given. I think that the the British theologian N.T. Wright really gets it right. He actually made a translation of the New Testament. That hasn't gotten very much attention, but it's called the Kingdom New Testament or the KNT. And it's a very interesting take on the New Testament. And in his translation... Here's how he renders verse 539. He says, don't use violence to resist evil. We must have a strong, active response to injustice and evil, but we cannot, in Jesus' name, respond to evil using the same violent means that the evildoers use. In other words, where the Old Testament standard is meet aggression with aggression— Meet violence with violence. Jesus says there's a more powerful way, but it's going to require greater strength than taking vengeance. I I want you to imagine if they did this literally, if somebody cut your ear off in a fight, then at some point an agent of the court would have to take a knife and in, in this place of official administration, they would take a knife and cut your ear off. Think about how violent a thing that is to even the score. He says that might create a fleeting sense of soothing for your desire for revenge, but it fixes nothing. The desire to seek retaliation, to meet aggression with aggression, is soothing at first, but accomplishes nothing in terms of God's desire and vision for our world. Revenge might make you feel a little bit better for a moment. But the truth is that revenge does not do anything to heal the wound of the original offense. The pain of what that person did still remains very much in your life and the person you just sought revenge on, it never really transforms them to a place of true remorse and repentance. When's the last time you sought revenge on someone and they said, you know, your, your vicious response to what I did really changed my heart. Man, like after I slashed your tires, when you slashed all four of my tires, I just sat there in my car and thought, what is wrong with my life? Why do I do this to people? It doesn't work that way. In our minds, in our twisted logic, in our rage and fury, we think if I just hurt you back, you'll know, and then you'll stop doing this to people. It never works, does it? History is borne out time and time again again that retribution and revenge actually solve nothing. It only provides us a cold and fleeting moment of satisfaction, followed by still the very brokenness and messed up nature of the world we live in. Jesus is not advocating powerlessness and inaction in the face of injustice. But what he's saying is when you follow your nature and you seek revenge, nothing is repaired. Nothing is restored. In fact, what it does is it deepens the cycles of hatred and bitterness. It deepens the conflict. It creates new offenses to which the other person is now keeping score. It's like trying to put out fire by dousing it with gasoline, thinking it's liquid, it's wet, surely this will help. Try putting out a fire with gas. It doesn't work. And I think that's the nature of revenge is we think in our hearts it will work. That my violent, aggressive response to your injustice and mistreatment will make you stop doing what you're doing. Jesus says there is a more powerful way but it is almost impossible. In fact, it is impossible to follow his way unless he himself has radically changed the way we think about justice in our own lives. And I know that N.T. Wright has gotten the right sense of what these words mean, because when I read the the examples Jesus now gives, it's very clear to me that's exactly what he's saying, is when people mistreat us, everything in a screams, I'm going to get you back. But Jesus' response is, don't meet power with that kind of power. Don't meet aggression with aggression and violence with violence. But meet evil head on, with love and mercy, and you will discover a far greater power than revenge could possibly show us. Now, I know for a lot of us hearing these words, part of the reason your faces look the way they look right now is this is not hypothetical or theoretical for you. You're not like, someday when someone wrongs me, I'm going to think about these things. You have a face, an ugly face right now in your mind. Oh, that person. I, they just ruined everything for me. They're the reason I'm not fully happy. They're the reason I just don't feel good right now. And maybe that is absolutely true. But because many of us have a real person in mind, a real situation or injustice, I want you not to think theoretically, but seriously think about what Jesus is saying. And what would it mean to you if you took the words of your Savior literally and seriously? and decided, God help me, I will not just hear and agree, I will follow what you've said. Look at these examples Jesus gives. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jewish culture was a lot like Korean culture when I was growing up. If you were left-handed, it was like you were from the devil. They kept trying to correct you. Oh, my kid's left-handed, and they kept trying to make you right-right-handed, and you looked like you couldn't write because you were a lefty, but they kept trying to make you into a forced righty. In Jewish culture, there was something associated because the left hand, think about this, in a world before soap, you needed one hand reserved for the dirty stuff. Like, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, Okay? In a world before soap, one of the hands had to do the dirty work while the other one was for eating. You don't mix up those two hands. If someone hands you a snack and you grab them with your left hand and put it in your mouth, you're like, don't! And so the right hand was what most people used as their dominant hand. Now think about it this way. If you're facing someone and you're struck on the right cheek and they wouldn't use their left hand, that means they slapped you with the back of the hand. One of the greatest insults in Jewish culture was a slap to the face, but the ultimate insult was a backhanded slap. See, a backhanded slap doesn't have as much force as the... the I don't know if you ever saw the Key and Peel skip, front-hand, backhand, but a front-handed slap intends to give serious pain. A backhanded slap is just an insult. It's like, you dog. It, if you were a Jewish person slapped with the back of the hand that is about as demeaning and insulting a gesture as another person can do to you. And if that's what someone did in order to demean you, everything in your flesh would be screaming, hit him right back. You backhanded me, I'm going to backhand, fronthand, backhand, fronthand you. Let's go, it's on. And Jesus, knowing that's how we're feeling in that moment, Says to us, but if that happens, you as my follower say, hey, I have another cheek, give it your best shot. Turn the other cheek. And we'll unpack that. For now, let the tension of that just sit with you, okay? We're going to just keep ratcheting up the tension. If you're paying attention, this is going to make you more and more uncomfortable. The second example is, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, this is someone in court who's pursuing you with one intent, it is to ruin you. It is to reduce you to nothing, to take from you everything, literally the shirt off your back. Most Jewish people had two garments, an inner and outer garment. One was a shirt or the tunic, the other one was a cloak or a coat. Now, that cloak was not just an outer covering for the daytime, but it was a very important piece of clothing because at night it became your blanket or your pillow. It was what helped you sleep at night, and it was so sacred in Jewish culture that the laws of the land protected that garment so that even if someone were owed everything you had, they were not legally allowed to take your coat from you. That's the one inalienable piece of property that every Jew is entitled to keep. What Jesus says is someone is in court and their object, their aim is to ruin you and reduce you to nothing. And some of us have felt that. A person who's not just looking to hurt us, but to destroy us. And he says when someone has that heart towards you and they're trying to take the shirt off your back, offer up to them the coat as well. That thing which they have no legal right to demand, even that, You offer up to them. You uncomfortable yet? (laughs) I think Jesus might have been drinking before the sermon. Look at this one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's where we get the phrase, the extra mile. We usually use that phrase in the service industry. Go the extra mile. That's what we do at Disney, you know. But it was actually a really um, ugly situation that produced that phrase. In the days of Jesus, Israel was under Roman occupation. And as anybody who served a tour in Afghanistan or Iraq will tell you, the locals don't really like that you're there. They're not like, thank you for occupying our land and walking around our neighborhood with guns. Um, They resent the fact that your dominant power is on display every day in front of us, reminding us that we are a subjugated, occupied people. And the law provided that if a Roman soldier was tired of carrying his pack, he could conscript any citizen at that time to carry his pack for up to a mile. So whenever you saw Roman soldiers marching, you're like, oh man, I'm, and you cross the street and you're hoping they do not see you because if they're tired of carrying the pack, they will like, you! Carry this one mile and you couldn't say a thing. Now that was really offensive because it wasn't just hard work carrying someone else's load but it was a reminder that your people have no power against their people. It was a clear abuse of authority and power, and it was reprehensible. And every Jew who was made to carry a Roman soldier's pack for that mile was sorely tempted to tell that Roman soldier where he could put his pack. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you want to tell me, I, I would rather go to jail than carry your stupid pack. You carry your own pack, and you get a good beating and probably spend the night in jail. But I know that if that were me, there would be such a strong desire to be defiant and say, you know what? No, carry it yourself. And Jesus says, if a soldier makes you carry his pack one mile, you say to him, I've got nothing to do. I'll, I'll go one more mile with you. What's it like living in our land? Do you have family back home? And the people are hearing this and thinking, this man has lost his mind. And it finally says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. We work so hard to make sure that we and the people we love are cared for. Nothing comes easy in this world. If you have wealth and security, it didn't come automatically. You work very hard to make sure that you and yours are taken care of. But every once in a while, another person who sees that you have more than they have will impose their real needs upon you. And it's very uncomfortable to be put in that place. What do you do when you have a new car and someone says, hey, can I borrow your car for like an hour? And you're put in the position to have to look at a person and you go, no, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable with that. It's my car. And so we resent a little bit when a person in real need imposes that need on us and asks to use what is legitimately ours. And sometimes, and I think that's the subtext of this, a person understands that you're a generous, kind person, and sometimes needy people will even take advantage of those who are kind and keep milking the same udder over and over, if you will. I've had that happen to me, where I'll help a person And I'm saying, I'm going to help you. And they just stop trying. They keep coming to me for the same help. I'm like, I want to help you, but you're breaking my back here. At some point, I want you to be able to stand on your own. Your need always becomes my problem, and it's starting to get very heavy. It's not the worst kind of persecution you might feel. It's weird even to frame a person's need as persecution, but it's a kind of expression of power which puts us in a weird position. And Jesus says, "Anytime someone asks you for something, wants to borrow something, puts you in that position of imposing their need on you, if you are going to follow me, give it to him." I think what these examples have in common is in each case, someone is exercising power to initiate something in our lives, something over which I have no control. If you slap me, I, I can't control that. I might even be shocked. I'm like, I, no, I didn't see that coming. You slap me, I'm like, whoa, why'd you do that? If someone sues you, if someone abuses their power over you, if someone imposes their need or burden on you, those are not things we have control over. But what Jesus says is you have all the power and control over what you do in response to that. The first move may have been theirs, but the second move is entirely yours if someone slaps you, if someone sues you, if somebody abuses their power over you, you can't control the fact that that's happening, but you have every bit of control over how you choose to respond. And in a moment of great clarity, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, listen to this, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This morning's message is one of those messages that reminds us that Christianity is not a way of life that can be pursued on our own strength. It is not something you can live out because you've decided to be a good person. Its standards are so impossibly high unless God radically changes something deep inside of us. The way of Jesus is impossible to live. But if we can live this way because he's changed us, something profound will happen in the world around us. See, at the heart of Christianity is self-denial. And I think it's so easy to agree that self-denial sounds like the right way to live, but we are so rarely put in situations where self-denial is demanded of us. Most of the self-denial is voluntary. We choose to sacrifice, and it makes us feel like better people but it is in the face of mistreatment and injustice that self-denial takes real shape. Look, I can deny myself and say, you know what, I've already had two ice creams, why don't you take my second one? I'm such a good person, and I can deny myself that way, but it's in the face of mistreatment and injustice and attack that self-denial suddenly takes a real clear view. And it's in the face of that kind of mistreatment that it's revealed to us just how seriously we have decided to follow Jesus. I think if nobody ever mistreated us or attacked us, we would never fully know if we've decided to follow the way of Jesus, if we really have a capacity for denying ourselves. When Jesus tells us this is how we should respond to injustice and mistreatment, it's nothing less than what he did already for us when he took the cross willingly. See, our sins demanded an answer. And it's only easy to judge another person if you forget that you yourself are worthy of judgment. That you've done things that set you as an enemy of God and that unrighteousness demanded a response. That it, it required retribution. Someone had, to, someone had to pay to make things Right? What Jesus says is, because I've already done that for you, it will no longer be impossible for you to respond to the injustice of others this way. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that this is the great proof that the gospel has taken root, is how we respond to the evil others do to us. And not just the initial response, not just the first three or four efforts But in the end, the way we handle the mistreatment of others is one of the greatest proofs that the gospel has taken root deep in our being. When a person attacks us, their hatred for us is really easy to see, but behind their hatred of us is very often a deep self-loathing and despair. I don't think it's possible to be really cruel to another person without first learning to hate yourself. And when a person attacks us, they usually are expecting revenge. In fact, sometimes that's what they want. I can't explain it, but I've met a lot of people who are so broken inside that they attack others wanting a good fight. It's only in conflict that they feel alive. They're spoiling for a good argument. They hate themselves, so they want to make others hate them too. It's a strange psychology, but I've seen it again and again and again. Why do you act like this? I don't know. But somewhere deep down inside, in the heart of every aggressor and attacker and evildoer, is a broken spirit. Is somebody in whose life something went terribly wrong, and they are no longer... They're meant to be. Something is really off and is broken inside of them. And what Jesus is teaching us is that when we respond to the evil that person does to us with revenge, which is so natural, so expected, it does nothing to address their heart. It just deepens the cycle of brokenness. But when they unexpectedly receive love and mercy and grace, it's a shocking, jarring, attention grabbing experience. And that has real power to change the way the story ends. The Apostle Paul summarized this teaching of Jesus so beautifully at the end of his letter to the Romans. Here's what he says, Romans 12, 18 to 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, listen to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is such an important statement. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We will never rid the world of evil by fighting evil with more evil. If we don't learn to meet evil with good of Christ, evil will overcome us. See, what Paul is saying is no one gets away with anything. No injustice will ever really be left to stand because at the end of all things, everyone will give an account to God for what they've done and said. Nobody gets away with anything. One of the fundamental ways we express faith in God is to say, this thing which that person did needs resolution. It demands justice, and that justice will come one day. My role is not to seek that justice, because vengeance and retribution belong to God, but the calling he gives to us is in this moment, don't focus on vengeance. Focus on overcoming evil with good or that evil will overcome us. Professor Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, offers up a story, a testimony by a young man named Jared McKenna. He's a dude that is a rising Christian leader in Western Australia. He preaches a message of very strong, active response that is nonviolent against the injustices and evils of the world. And he tells about a formative experience he had when he was a university student. He was an art student. And on a train ride home from school, he had been reading the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time in his life. And he was caught up in the words that were so provocative. For this young man, the words of Martin Luther King were so countercultural and counterintuitive, his mind was just completely enraptured by what these ideas could mean in the real world. As he was walking off the train, and he was already a little bit ADHD, you know, he, was, uh, he could get lost in another world, and he didn't notice that as he was walking home from the train station, a really large guy in a dark tracksuit was approaching him. And this big guy confronted him, and he mumbled something about, give me your money, and he realized he was being mugged by a guy who did not seem like he was in his right mind. It was clear that this guy wanted to harm him as well as rob him. And so I want to pick up from that point, and I've edited slightly um, Jared's testimony for readability and for length, but here's, I want to just end with this. Here's how he picks up the story from that point. The words of Jesus that Martin Luther King Jr. had been experimenting with You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, the flash of those words in my imagination felt like warm oil over my head, with a tangible sense of this is how God has related to me. For the first time in the situation, I felt grounded. I had already gotten out my wallet, so I reached in and gave him what I had, which was only ten dollars. I'm still not sure why, but I didn't simply hand over the money. I stuck up my hand and said, I'm Jared. Wide-eyed and with mouth open, he grabbed my hand and grunted, James. There was an awkward pause. I noticed his arm. The bruising ran all along it, interrupted only by the scarring that rivaled a pincushion. James's arm was offered to me like an icon in an Orthodox worship service to contemplate the depth of his pain and all the desperate attempts to escape it. The next thing that hit me was the stench, like stale urine mixed with cigarettes. As we stood on the bridge suspended above the freeway, James launched into his life story at a pace to rival the cars passing below. His words seemed to overtake each other, then cut each other off. He said he was sorry to be doing this to me, but that he was in a bad way. He'd been doing really well. He was on the Naltrexone program and getting off the stuff, but then his mom had kicked him out of the house again, and now he was back out on the streets. I asked him to come back to my house and eat and have a shower and get a change of clothes. I tried to find him a new place to stay. Another awkward pause. Then through the middle of us both on the bridge darted a young woman in another black tracksuit with a big bag under her arm yelling, Go, go! We gotta go! Wait, James, before you go, I shuffled in my backpack to grab the little New Testament I always carried with me. It's got my name and number in it if you ever change your mind about a place to stay. James got right up in my face and started yelling, What do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. His face contorted with an anger that had an intensity that explained his arm. Without even thinking, I found myself saying, James, we are all going to hell. That's why Jesus came. What happened next was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. This big guy who only moments earlier was ready to beat me up just started crying. I'm not talking about one tear, sad movie crying. He burst out crying like a little kid does. Suddenly, this pain that was so visible in his anger, on his scarred arm, and in his situation seemed to burst like a floodgate at the news of God's love for him. James didn't say anything more to me. He snorted to try to stop the snot and the tears, and then he grabbed the Bible and started running. After a few paces, he turned, looked me in the eye, waved the Bible, and nodded. Then he kept running. James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me. On most days, It's very easy in America to believe that the Christian life is not such a hard life. It doesn't really take that much to be a good person, a Christ follower. But every now and again, someone will do something to us so hurtful, so wicked, so unfair, it will demand a response from us. It cannot simply be left to stand. And in that moment... We have a decision to make. What difference is it going to make in that moment that I follow Jesus? Because everything in my flesh is screaming, get them back. Let them feel what they've made you feel. Teach them not to do this to you or others. But Jesus says if you do that, the only thing you will succeed in doing is escalating the anger and conflict. And cycle of hatred that will exist forever between you. That is not the message of the cross. It is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to overlook an offense because Jesus has overlooked yours. And it is to do this impossible thing that when someone mistreats me, I answer that injustice with love and mercy. And it will be so unexpected, so jarring and shocking to that person who is ready for a fight, it will grab their attention. And that powerful act, more than any act of retaliation, can bring that person to a place of true repentance and remorse. Doesn't Paul write to the Romans that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance? When have you ever walked away from an act of vengeance and thought, I feel much better, things are going to be good now? Do you realize how powerful the way of Jesus is? How impossible it will be to do this unless he's changed us somewhere deep down. But he has done something amazing for each of us. And because of what he's done, it is not impossible for us to respond to the wickedness of others with love and mercy. And if we will do it, we will marvel at how it affects the people around us and how it affects us. So I want to ask you for a moment to think about that person with whom you have this broken relationship. And it's broken because they have done something to you that was unwarranted and undeserved. You can't explain why they did it, but it has hurt you deeply. And for this moment, put aside everything you feel in your flesh and ask Jesus to enter into that moment with you and say, Jesus, if you could lead me now how do you want me to respond if I intend really to follow you where are you taking me here in this and as it becomes clear I think the next prayer has to be I don't think I can do it without you you gotta help me please help me